Hello, uh, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, this episode will be uh, a deeper look into the system of the world, which is the third volume of The Baroque Cycle by Neil Stevenson. Um, specifically, we'll look at the middle part of, of Solomon's Gold, which is book six of the entire series. Uh, so this, uh, where we kind of left off, it was just uh, the first part of this book is really just uh, Daniel Waterhouse floating around uh, London and its environs, running different errands, picking up science stuff for Leibniz to send to Russia, um, having Van Hoop go to Massachusetts to pick up his stuff. I guess there's still more details on that little uh, side quest for uh, Captain Van Hoop uh, in this part of the book. Um, and then the bombing. So, so I guess the main plot development here is that someone is maybe trying to kill Daniel Waterhouse or killing some other people. Uh, you know, it's not quite clear who the target is. So that's kind of quite where we pick right where we pick up. Um, I think there's a bit of a time jump here, about a month or so, uh, till April 19th, so 18, sorry, April 1714. And this is, this is kind of where the rest of Solomon's goal takes place in April. Um, I think the climax of this particular book is the 23rd of April, 1714. So, um, Things are getting quite condensed here in this part of the story. The most condensed part, I think, of the whole book. Um, even, yeah, even the final book stretches over a little bit more time. Um, yeah, really, just, just a handful of days, really. For this episode and the next, we're really just dealing with a couple weeks of time. Um, so, uh, they're meeting in Clerkenwell. Uh, Daniel's meeting with a bunch of other members of this kind of investigative club he has formed in Clerkenwell. The goal of this club, uh, it's kind of centered around Daniel and, and Mr. Threader, the two, tar the, the two possible targets of the first infernal device, which are these phosphorus uh, bombs connected to clock timers. Um, they're beginning their investigation on, like, who did this, why who's the target, all these kinds of things. So they kind of form this investigative club. Uh, so it's a little, it becomes a little bit of a detective story for a time, which is kind of a fun aside. We haven't quite seen that, although there's a lot of mysteries in the book. We haven't quite seen an investigation like this before. Um, so a couple of things they focus on in this investigation. Uh, one is like the clock work that was done, used to make the bombs. So this kind of leads Daniel to maybe want to investigate clockmakers or people who know about clockmakers. Um, the other thing is like the use of phosphorus, right? How can phosphorus be produced? How can someone of a, of a nefarious character and, you know, suspicious background can, you know, get phosphorus? And they know the same thing like Enoch Root and, of course, Jack Shafto know is that you can boil down phosphorus from urine, although that's a really smelly process. So if you go back to the confusion, there's that whole bit about producing phosphorus from urine in India and it was a really smelly dangerous 
it was a whole process that required so much urine to to do you had to have that supply you had to have people basically ferrying out urine so this couldn't be very easily hidden so that's another sort of lead they have now the people collected for this uh, of course this daniel um mr threader mr orney who owns the shipyards where the second infernal device uh went off mr uh, Kicken, who's also from the shipyards, Monsignor Arnock, who's like, uh, f you know, related, uh, young next generation of Arnock from from uh, Jack's uh, circle. Maybe a few others in here. It's a pretty big, big club, but they all have a, an interest in trying to find out who this is. They even for, sort of form the club in an official way where they actually collect money and have an account and are hoping to get paid if they ever find the, the criminal, right? Because there's rewards for this kind of thing. Um, but Waterhouse is the one who says, like, we can't just sit here and, you know, talk about it and have theories. We actually have to go to hang out with criminals. Waterhouse sort of concludes here. Um, I have to do, you know, we have to go out there, right? We have to go to the watch uh, shops and things like that to find it. Um, specifically, I think it's Mr. Threader who says we actually have to go and talk to criminals. He says, to find criminals, Dr. Waterhouse, let us search among criminals, not horologists, and let us not do it ourselves, but, ha but have thief takers paid for by the Tsar of Musc Muscovy do it for us. Um, you know, of course, uh, I guess the, the Tsar was, was the victim of the ship, right? Of That was destroyed. So that's kind of where this first meeting leads off. Um, but anyways, Daniel does pursue the horologist taint, the, the, the approach, um, the track. That's what I meant to say. The horologist track, uh, finding someone who knows about clock making because clocks were used in the making of it. And it's such a new technology and it's not very well known and it's probably sophisticated. Remember, this is just a couple decades after the hook was first experimenting with, with the making of watches. And one of the big problems with the longitude problem is is having accurate time measurements they're still a long time from having really accurate time and that's something i think waterhouse points out during the meeting it's like you know just because the bomb went off at a certain point doesn't mean it went off when the bomber wanted it to go off right because of the imprecision of these of these devices um but it turns out it, you know they they turn they seem to go off at the right time uh at least the one at the end of the at the end of this book but anyways, Jack does go out and seek them, and he finds uh, this man uh, outside Clerkenwell somewhere, um, and he he's like following him or something, and he eventually finds out, he, he identifies himself as, as a Mr. Hoxson, right, Peter Hoxson. Um, but he goes by the name of Saturn, right, which is, of course, the, uh, the Roman god of, the, of time, all right, Kronos. And... And he's a really interesting character. Um, he's kind of associated with Jack. We see him together at various times. He's also sort of a bit of a free agent, but he's a kind of an underground figure, even though he's trained as a watchmaker and he's super interested in technology. Now I've seen online people say like his physical description and his character seem to be the closest uh, standard we have for like Neil Stevenson in the story. And, and I'll accept that. That's, that's fine. He is sort of a, you know, a character who's, sort of there to represent certain ideas and perspectives the way Enoch Root does, you know, as being kind of the, the symbol of the eternal truths of alchemy or whatever. Now, this meeting seems to be arranged because he, like, 
returns a watch that was stolen from him by like a pickpocket um, and and seems to know a lot about Daniel Waterhouse. Um, and in fact, he is sort of uh, a plan. It is kind of leading Daniel in a certain direction. Now, what's really fascinating about Saturn is he sort of has this religious relationship with time and watch keeping. And he's, you know, an expert on like the hook designs and all this. Um, he says, for instance, uh, or he says to Daniel, is it not the ancient purpose of Cambridge to turn out clerics and send them out in England and minister to unwashed? Daniel says, you know that perfectly well. I'm not a minister to you or any other man, Peter Hulkson. For if I ever was a vicar, I'm a fallen one now, and I'm not fit to minister to a dog. I want to stray early and have strayed uh, far. The only way I can think of to find my way closer to God is through the strange ministry I spoke of earlier, whereof Hook and Spinoza were prophets. It is not a way I recommend for any man, for I am as estranged from the main line of religion as a stylic monk sitting on the pillar of waste. And then Hoxon says, I have strayed farther and grown more strange than you, Doc. I've been wandering in that same waste without a pillar to sit upon. Therefore, you, perched on your horse, are like a Ferris to me. Um, and then he says something about time, and Hoxon says, there's that word again, time. Let me speak of time, Doc, and say this to you. If you continue to walk through the Hockley and the Hole unaccompanied and to wander on the city as you're doing, your time may be measured in days or hours. You are not leery enough. The fact that you have made note of certain coves who make unlearly gaggers uh, their prey, every foot scamper and bridle call on the upper fleet pricks up his ears when you trudge out to your swine yard and disappear into your hole in the ground. Your time will be up soon, end quote. So he's warning him. Now Saturn's very close to the the underworld. You know, he's basically like a um, kind of a quasi-villainous character here. At least he's a bit suspicious. He's a suspicious person anyways. Um, and he kind of asks Hawkson if he knows anything about like Edward Teak, because of course that's a big mystery that's still overhanging this whole series is why did Edward Teak attack um, Daniel and the Minerva with a whole fleet of pirate ships just for one man who in the big scheme of things doesn't seem that important. Um, but basically they kind of build a little bit of an association and, and he's sort of incorporated into Daniel's circle. He's someone that Daniel can, can reach out for. Um, but a really, really fascinating uh, character, even though only, he only pops into the story once in a while. Now, later that same day, uh, Daniel goes off. This is like the next chapter of the book, uh, Bloomsbury, it's called. Um, and it's just right after his meeting with Hoaxin. And he goes to, uh, to meet up with Newton's niece, who is the mistress of, of the older Ravenscar. Right? Not Will Ravenscar, but... Um, or not uh, Will Comstock, but Roger Comstock, right? Uh, Daniel's old friend, even though they haven't talked very much in a, in a while. Um, well, I guess they did They did talk about the longitude, right? So I guess they had that meeting. But, you know, he was the one who sort of helped establish the Massachusetts Bay Institute of Technological Arts, the place, you know, Daniel Sinecure. Um, but he goes to the... He goes to the house, meets with, with uh, Newton's niece, and they talk a little bit about Newton and other things. And the thing that kind of makes uh, Daniel suspicious here, and it kind of adds to the mystery, it's kind of like Roger actually becomes a bit of a suspect at this point in the story. That's because he has this replica volcano in this Baroque house he lives in. You know, it's got all the furniture and wild. There's, in fact, this is transitioning even into the Rococo style of interior design. So if you studied your art history, you know, like the Baroque kind of moves into... Uh, in the early 18th century, 
to this Rococo style, which was kind of a lot of it's it's quite Baroque in its style, but it's it's really focused a lot more on interior design and very ornamented interiors with a lot of like gold leaf and and intricate designs on the walls and elaborate chandeliers and paintings of aristocrats uh, you know out in the countryside or you know swinging and lovers and things like that it's it's that kind of you know it's thematically kind of pretty shallow work but it's it was what was fashionable among the aristocrats of that time right and we see and rogers house sort of has that high baroque or even Rococo style. And one thing it has in it is this replica of a volcano that actually can erupt and it uses phosphorus to do this. So this sort of makes Daniel a little bit suspicious of, of Daniel, of Roger. And then the next stop, again, this, this book, the whole first half of this book, we're about halfway through Solomon's Gold and it's like half of the time it's like Daniel running different errands and catching up with people he hasn't, he hasn't talked to for a while. But our next chapter is at Isaac Newton's house um, on St. Martin Street. Uh, and again, it's later. It's all still in that same day. It's still that uh, early April day, which isn't dated exactly, but, you know, whatever. Um, and it's wonderful. He, like, he just picks up, like, they just were having a conversation before. He didn't, like, no greeting or anything. It's it's kind of the nature of their relationship where they really get to the point. And he says, all right, I have a riddle for you. That riddle is, I saw a, a merchant um, bite and weigh a coin. Right. And Daniel's thinking about this is I understand why you bite a coin to make sure it's gold. And I understand why you weigh a coin, which is to make sure it's gold. Why do you have to do both? You know, is this guy just being overly zealous? Is he being foolish? You know, especially with the reforms, Newton's reforms of the of the monetary system. Right. The money's better than it's ever been. Right. The you know, he paid a lot or he paid a good price for gold in replacement to silver to push out silver from the market send that stuff to the east and make the base currency of of england the, the gold guinea right which of course makes a necessity to have these lower level coins that aren't like pieces of eight and and, and silver which is why there was that the tin mining stuff earlier in the book right and the whole connection to newcomen and the and all that so it's all sort of connected here in terms of the the, the money supply is connected to industrialization, not just as a found currency for commerce and capitalism, but even in the sense of actually producing the commodities for for the monetary system. Um, and that's how this reunion between Isaac Newton and Daniel Waterhouse begins. They hadn't talked to each other in like 18 years or something like that. Um, and... Now, the thing with gold is why is gold used, right? They, you know, of course, gold has, I guess, it's, it's fairly rare. It's malleable. It doesn't tarnish. Um, but it also has that unique a a attribute of being like the heaviest of these common metals that can, that can be used, right? It's heavier than silver, heavier than tin and aluminum and all these other possible currencies. So if you weigh it, you know it's not adulterated, right? Because if you were to put in any base metals, right, it would weigh less, Right. So this was the trick. Right. You you make it an alloy of, of, of some other metal. Right. You make it an alloy of, of silver and that's going to lower its actual value. But its face value will still be whatever. One one guinea. So that's why with the biting and the weighing is, is important. And. And so he kind of opens up with with that. But f before he even gets to this riddle, that's how Daniel sort of presents it as a riddle. 
Um, you can see what's on Isaac Newton's mind and all this is the calculus dispute. And he's immediately asking about uh, Leibniz. And of course, Dan, uh, Isaac really wants Daniel to be on his side in this, in this calculus dispute, even though he doesn't fully trust him, right? So he goes into this riddle and Newton just says he should have waited. He didn't have to um, bite it, but he's not foolish to do this. And Daniel's like, well, why is this? He says, even I know that coiners frequently make their counterfeits by joining two faces stamped from gold foil and filling the void between them with solder. The solder is both lighter and softer than gold. This provides two means of detection. One may weigh the coin or bite it. Either should suffice. In particular, if a coin has passed the test of weighing, its value should be confirmed beyond doubt, for nothing is heavier than gold. Any adulteration should be betrayed by want of gravity. Unquote. I think nothing's heavier than gold. He really means like denser, right? I think that's the actual word he means. Because, of course, anything can be heavier than gold in right quantities, right? It's like with the same volume, gold's the, the heaviest thing. At least for use for coins, right? I'm sure there's other things that are denser, but it's not practical to use as, as coinage. Um, so, but Newton said, or Newton says, but he's not being foolish, right? And he's aware, which is a bit of annoying for for Newton because he he thinks our, the currency in England is basically trustworthy because of his work in the mint. But he does say he's not necessarily being foolish. So then we get a review of Newton's work for the Mint and how he sort of helped improve the, the state of the currency in, in England, pushing out bad currency and, and, and really, you know, making prime value for the gold guineas that he's been establishing. Now, Newton's enemy in all this is, of course, the coiners, the people making counterfeit currency. Right. And of course, they have to make it at less than the cost to make it has to be less than the value of the face coin. Otherwise, there's no reason to be uh, um, making these counterfeit money. Right. But this is special, right, because it might bite. You bite it. Some coins you might bite and they seem to be gold. But in fact, they weigh, you know, the weight might be off or something. So why is this? Um, Anyways, he's aware, right? He's probably nitpicking. That's Newton's point. But but I, Newton says there is a problem here. And the problem is essentially the philosophical mercury, or the, the, uh, the Solomonic gold, I should say, is in England. It's there. Now, what does this do? Well, if you have some of this gold, this is magic gold, right? The magic gold from the Minerva that was originally, you know, heisted by Jack way back in the earlier volume. If you have this... It's a little bit heavier than actual gold, right? So that's a special feature. It's like a isotope or something of of, of it. Um, a few more neutrons. I don't know what exactly. I don't think Neil Stevenson ever explains what it actually is, but it's heavier. It's denser, I should say, than than the regular gold that's used in the currency. So with that, you could adulterate it and have less gold in it than you'd expect, and it would still weigh the same, right? So this is what is kind of flustering Newton, but it's also what's exciting him because if you remember, the reason he took the job in the first place in the Mint was to be at the center of the center of gravity of global commerce. So the gold would come into England. He could control it and he could see a lot of gold and then through that maybe find the Solomonic gold. And he says that this is really what he's after.
And he actually explains how he found some of this stuff. He said, For the first several years, there was nothing, not a trace. I despaired of ever find, of finding it ever. Then, during my respite of the war, around 1701, I found a bit of gold heavier than 24 carat. I can't summon words now, here or now, to convey my emotions then. It was just a flake of gold leaf found on a, in a coiner's shop after he was raided, on my orders by the king's messengers. The coiner himself had been slain during the raid, most frustrating. Several years later, I found a counterfeit guinea that was heavier than it ought to be. In time, I hunted down the coiner who had made it and interrogated him to where he had obtained the bullion. He had gotten most of it from conventional sources, but he said that he had recently purchased through a middleman a quantity of gold in the form of sheet metal, hand-hammered about eighth of an inch thick. Six months later, I talked to another coiner who recollected having seen a larger piece of such gold. He said it had been marked on one side with a linear pattern of scrapes and stained on the other side, other face, with tar. End quote. So this is the gold from the Minerva, right? which is the Solomonic gold, and it's heavier. It's worth denser than, than the 24-carat stuff. So that's Jack, and, and Newton knows about Jack the Coiner, that he's messing with British currency with, his, with this coinage, right? Now, why is Jack doing this? It seems he's, part of it is, you know, he is doing counterfeit coinage, but part of it is to, to pay expenses. He would sometimes take a plank off the Minerva and, you know, melt it down to pay, pay off who he needed to or whatever, basically for his expenses over time. And through that, this money gets into the into the system and then they you know newton goes on sort of his his typical rant about alchemy and the discoveries of king solomon and king solomon's islands and the whole story of this of the spanish expeditions to the solomons and the discovery of this gold and and review for us all the stuff about you know the discovery of the gold by jack shafto and the stealing of it and how it got dispersed around the world as a result um, of this. And, and really, that's what, you know, I guess Jack has some of the gold, but most of it's dispersed, isn't it? Right? In Cairo, they lost about half of it. Then the Pirate Queen took some of it. Not all of it was melted down for the Minerva, just some of it. So the gold really has, it's in the system now, right? It's not all in one place. Pretty horrifying for, for Newton, but it also means he can, from this position in the Mint, get a hold of some of it. Now, Daniel suggests at some point that maybe Jack the Coiner is trying to bait you and get you to expose yourself to come after him in order to, you know, to get you or to trick you in some ways. And Isaac just can't believe anyone is, is, is smarter than him. But anyways, the point of all this, this is a really important part of this book, a really important conversation. But the big important thing here is kind of getting Newton and Daniel to agree to work together on this investigation about the coiner. Because it seems, Daniel seems to think it might coincide in some way with the investigation he's doing about the infernal devices. But before he leaves, he, he actually says to him like, but don't forget, we're going to have to have that talk about the calculus one of these days because that's coming up um, pretty soon in about like 400 pages. We're going to have the calculus thing to, to deal with. So, anyway, it's a really important conversation in this book. Maybe the, the most important chapter I'm going to talk about today. So, the very next chapter is uh, set in uh, Leicester's house. Um, I guess some other public club or salon or something. Uh, it's set 10 seconds later, right after this. And this scene is uh, just Dapa and Eliza having a talk about... Um, Mostly about slavery. 
So it's a, it's a good section. We haven't seen much of Eliza in the book yet, and she comes up a little bit more in currency. Um, but as I suggested before, like she doesn't, she's not, her story isn't as, as like gripping as I think it is in The Confusion or even in Quicksilver. But uh, it's okay. She still shows up here. So she's like by this point in her, I'm in middle 50s, I guess. So, so she was what, early 20s when she departed from Jack and that was 30 years earlier. So yeah, she's somewhere in her, her 50s, but she's you know still still presented as, 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 as uh, pretty striking, uh, as you might expect. Um, and still pretty brilliant. Still uh, engaged in commerce, still a commodities expert. Um, but she's talking to Dapa here about her work on anti-slavery, right? And this is a really kind of critical th- addition to the book, I guess. Um, obviously, we, we know how abolitionists used moral suasion and used the words of slaves, former slaves, to convince readers that slavery was evil, right? And we take it for granted when we study like 19th century American history, how important the slave narrative was. But Eliza and Dapa here, of course, Dapa is mostly like the first mate for the Minerva and the, the agent, the accountant and all that for stuff for Van Hook. But in his free time, he's dist- helping to distribute broadsheets and posters and, and pamphlets and things on anti-slavery, taking the, v- the words of slaves and having them basically inventing the sort of slave narrative. Now, I don't know when the first slave narratives were. I, I think they were in the early 18th century. There may have been some from the 17th century, but they really take off as a genre in the later part of the 18th century, right, with Olode Equiano. We think of um, Cuguano is another one I'm thinking of. I don't know of any slave narratives that go back to, like, 1714. Um, but anyways, they're... You know, that's Neil Stevenson. He likes to use these anachronisms in this story. So he's uh, doing that here. He's putting these characters in the forefront of the anti-slavery movement and particularly the strategy of moral suasion and and the slave narrative to convince people that slavery was wrong, right? And they, Eliza talks about how they're shooting grape shot. She says, like, each of these accounts seems to influence some people in different ways. Right. And this is true, I think, of the 19th century abolitionist movement, too. Right. There were certain stories that were more effective for middle class women and others that may have affected middle class men a little bit more. Right. Or regionally, they touch people's hardness in different ways. So she says, like, I get these letters saying, oh, this story moved me so much. Um, and she said, oh, but each letter was referring to a different narrative, a different story, not any one. So we're just. It's just we're doing grape shot. We don't have that one book that like Frederick Douglass or Uncle Tom's Cabin or that one text that's going to be the cannonball that's going to take down the ship of slavery. And so she says, uh, we're going to have to do that, Dapa. We're going to have to um, sink some slave ships with our words and with our argument. But we need that narrative. We need the story that's going to do that. And that's sort of the mission that Eliza leads with Dapa. So, um, you know, of course, Dapa was a slave, a galley slave, enslaved in Africa. Eliza was a slave. Um, and they had particular stories. And then you have the Atlantic slave trade, right, which is all tied to sugar. In fact, it's like Eliza is so anti-slavery. She, boy- she does boycott strategies, too, the consumer strategy of not eating anything or, or 
you know, with sugar, not buying any sugar. I don't know how common that was at the time. I think consumer strategies are more of a 20th century invention, largely. Of course, during the American Revolution, you had boycotts, but that was not boycotting a specific item because it was made by slaves. Maybe in the 19th century, the abolitionists didn't have cotton clothes or whatever. Or they bought cotton from ethical sources or whatever. So um, maybe I should say 19th and 20th century become the, the centuries of consumer boycott politics. Um, but, that, you know, he's being an anachronistic all the time. He's setting seeds that are going to develop later on in history and just kind of showing the roots of it and putting his characters at the center of some of these stories. All right. Now, we're still the same day. This whole section's been the same day. I guess so. Uh, once again, Daniel's on another uh, side mission here. Uh, he goes to the Kit Kat Club. And there he also meets Dapa. And I think he actually passes by Eliza. He like just sees like the back of her head or something. He doesn't see Eliza until he go, later on goes to Germany uh, for Sophie's funeral. Well, I guess he's there for something else, but happens to coincide with Sophie's funeral. Uh, but anyways, he's at the Kit Kat Club and he's meeting with Dapa. So this is Dapa's second meeting of the day. And he, he asked a little bit about the gold planks and the Minerva and things like that. Um, and Dapa plays kind of coy about that. Um, and they talk about slavery um, and all that. Um, but the big thing there, the reason they're meeting is they got to work out this contract because remember Daniel's hiring Van Hook to go to England or go to New England to pick up all of his devices, right? And bring it back to, to uh, London. So he has to, um, you know, they have to work out this contract. But they have all these other conversations about about politics and things like that. It's kind of another meeting with uh, with Dapa and Roger and Daniel, and they all sort of get together, and, and Dapa gets sort of, there's, there's some offensive remarks made about Dapa or whatever, and, you know, we see him being dip diplomatic about it. Now, at the end of this chapter, um, Daniel kind of sets out some inquiries. Uh, he writes... Uh, well, he gets a letter um, from Saturn, and it says this. If you're reading this, it means that the boy has found you in Korean court. You may wish to check your pockets. Know that a representative of mine is scheduled to partake of high tea with a friend of a friend of Mr. Teach on Thursdays next. Inquiries will be made. I went to your hole in the ground and chased out two culls who had gone down there, and not for unusual purposes. That is buggery. <laughs> I believe they mistook me for a ghost of a knight Templar, from which I conclude they were cultivated men. End quote. So Saturn, who's been sort of recruited by Daniel to sneak around, has already kind of identified some things, right? That there's some suspicious people working around him and that basically, you know, there's this meeting that you might be able to crash. Um, then uh, he writes back to Saturn's and he asks him specifically about, uh, the, about gold, about the Solomonic gold. Uh, quote, suppose I came into possession of some odds and ends of yellow metal. Then do you know of any sort of men who would buy them from me? any you particularly dislike, I ask purely as an academic exercise on behalf of a noted natural philosopher. Here he's, he's basically, he's set up a meeting with me with a buyer of gold. Who else would buy gold uh, from the lower classes except like a coiner, right? A coiner would need, have need of gold. So he's basically trying to set up a trap for a coiner because Isaac Newton wants to capture one and torture him. That's another thing I should mention here. This is overhanging in this whole narrative, this whole final book, whole final, whole final volume is how brutally the English state 
and Newton was a part of this, you know, suppressed uh, not just the coiners, but any kind of property crime. I, I, I kind of urge you to go back and and read if you uh, and or reread if you if you've already looked at it. Uh, the London Hanged by Peter Lainpaul. I think that's his first book, but it's a wonderful window into how the rise of capitalism co- co- coincided with the rise of capital punishment. Right? You've always had that, but it really was used a lot more against the lower classes in the sixth, seventeenth, and eighteenth century as capitalism emerged. And it's because threats to property such as counterfeiting, um, but other things as well, even just stealing, uh, were seen as a, a threat to profits, right? Not just production, because it wasn't always a threat to production. In fact, as Bernard Mandeville kind of reminds us, is theft can actually have its benefits for society in a way, right? Is you're taking money from people who aren't using it to people who will use it. You're encouraging people to hire guards. You're giving jobs to jailers and, and all that. Um, but, you know, the, the political necessity to defend capital increased, and with it came increasing use of capital punishment, right? And the coiners were particularly targeted here, even by Newton. So there's a scene later on here where Newton dresses up, you know, in disguise to seek out coiners. This really happened, right? Newton really did this. Um, I forgot where I read that, but he actually would go undercover to capture these guys and then they'd be exec- tortured and executed really brutally like drawn and quartered and stuff not just not just purely hung all right so this is the you know that's why uh waterhouse says you know do you know of anyone who would buy this someone you don't like because what's going what's to happen to them is going to be pretty horrific um then he sends also sends a, so daniel after this sends a letter also to a little note to isaac newton saying you know you might be a target of of some bombs, right? This is after another sort of little meeting of the of the investigative club. And he says, maybe um, someone's trying to blow you up, so be careful about that. Um, so uh, then we get uh, the next chapter. Finally, we move to a different day. It's April 22, 1714, Crane Court. Um, and the epigraph we get here is from Daniel Defoe, of Plan of English Commerce, maybe the most common used text for epigraphs in this entire book uh, and he writes this whereas here all is as well brandy as wine and all are strong compounded drinks such as stout ale punch double beer fine ale etc are drank to excess and that to such a degree as to become poison as well as our health and to our moral morals faithful to the body to principles and even to the understanding that we see daily examples of men of strong body drinking themselves into the grave, and which is still worse, men of strong heads and good judgment drinking themselves into idiocy and stupidity. Um, you know, this is set kind of in a, in, in, this scene is set in a bar, I guess. At least it begins there. So that may be why. Um, so this meeting between, uh, with Saturn is, is sort of set up. Or with the guy that Saturn has has chosen to be this, coiner that's going to meet up with Daniel or whatever. So this has all been set up uh, in between these two chapters. Now Saturn, talking to Daniel about it, calls it a lay. And that's the name, of, that's the name Stevenson gives this chapter. Daniel and Saturn make a lay at a ken. Um, this term will come up later on when someone mentions that, that, you know, during the heist on the mint, which Jack Shafto leads, someone's going to say, oh, this is a lay, right? I mean, kind of a trick or a scheme, a trap, right? That's, that's what a lay means. So they're at this place, and they're waiting for this guy, Mr. Um, Baines, who's going to come. This is supposed to be this coiner. 
and Isaac Newton's there dressed up like a syphilitic, uh, kind of hiding down and keeping his eyes on things. And it's all just set up to be a, a raid um, on this Ken, on this basically this kind of underground tavern. And, you know, a way for Isaac to catch one of his, his, his a, a coiner, right? So you can torture him and get some information from him. I will say throughout this whole investigation, throughout Solomon's Gold, like Isaac Newton does come off as a bit of a adult about certain things, right? Or at least very straightforward, right? He, he knows how to catch coiners. He knows, you know, you capture them, torture them, find their accomplices, right? And execute them, right? That's what he knows. And it's fairly effective and it works all the time. But when you're dealing with someone like Jack Shafto, who's thinking several moves ahead, who has experience with heists and experience with these kinds of adventures and, and glamorous, uh, daring do kind of stuff, you know, he's not going to be so easily fall for a trap like this. Um, so anyways, they have their meeting um, and eventually, you know, the soldiers come in uh, to uh, to arrest this Mr. Baines. Saturn gets away. He, he sneaks away. So he's a little, he's, he's, he's clever enough to get away before they're captured. Um, but that's, that's what happens. And then, you know, so uh, not much more to say about it. It's just that it's such a brutal and straightforward kind of way of, 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 of solving, of, of trying to find Jack the Coiner. Uh, who Newton's already established is, is pretty a clever guy and, and just kind of evaded him for a while. Just showing you, I think Newton doesn't really respect the the lower classes in general. He thinks coiners are all just uh, ultimately just idiots who will all fall. Um, I mean, here's what it comes down to, to, to read a paragraph here. Charles White had spent the brief row sitting knee to knee with Mr. Baines, absentmindedly fondling the collection of dried human ears strung on his watch chain, and wondering aloud how long it would take him to sail down river to the Tower of London, where all of the really first-rate implements of torture were to be found. He had held a speculative colloquy with his fellow messengers, wondering whether it would suffice merely to keyhole Mr. Baines en route, whether the effectiveness of said keelhauling might be enhanced by doing it at this place, 100 yards away, where Fleet Ditch emptied into the Thames. Whether, in other words, Mr. Bain's ability to talk would be impaired or enhanced by being made to inhale sewage. Or whether they'd have to keelhaul him and then use the facilities in the tower. The problem being that traitors who were destined to be publicly hanged, castrated, drawn, and quartered anyways, frequently saw no incentive to talk. Um, I mean, that's investigative techniques at this time, right? It's not... Uh, it's, it's not particularly brilliant. You don't need a criminal science degree to to just torture people and extract information from them and then execute them. So um, they take him off. They take Baines to this Tower of London um, and it's revealed that he's a Russian um, and he's tortured. Um, so we know a Russian in the story already. So um, it might be might be uh, connected. Uh, but we'll talk about that in the the next episode, I guess. Um, so I, I think that's it for now. Uh, yeah, like I said, this book Solomon's Gold is like not that much seems to happen. Uh, it's it's the well, that may true be true of all the books in the system of the world. Um, a lot of things come together, but it does it does seem to drag a little bit. Um, the individual chapters, but. The next episode really covers the heist on the Mint and how Daniel and Isaac just totally get outclassed by um, by none other than Jack Shafto and 
and uh, some members of the Cabal and the Jex and, and others who are associated with them. Um, but I, I think, you know, leaving here on just a reminder of like just the brutality that that existed alongside the emergence of capitalism in, in Europe, that it required this horrible repression of the of the lower classes. Right. Whether they were counterfeiters or just regular thieves. Uh, we saw that actually throughout the tale, but I think it's a important reminder at this point in the story because we spend so much of this book with the upper classes that meeting characters like Saturn and the Spains, you know, or, you know, the members of the cabal who are still around Jack in his circle. It's, uh, you know, I just think it's an important rem rem reminder that, that this story really looks across classes in many ways. So anyways, in the next episode, I'll, I'll finish up my thoughts on uh, Solomon's gold um, and and that'll be it. So anyways, um, that's it for now. Thanks for listening. I'll, I'll see you next time.